0: Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, a podcast created and funded by Cure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Nalani Pearl-Hunt, and today I'm hosting a talk with Ann Osborne, the author of Coping with Ocular Melanoma, a Toolbox. We're really excited to have her here today. And let me tell you a little bit about Ann before I bring her on. So Ann R, Ziva as she's known on Facebook, was diagnosed with ocular melanoma in 2014. In her prior work life, she worked in a private practice as a licensed marriage family therapist in Northern California. She continues training law enforcement and emergency fire personnel on how to take care of themselves during their career. Upon medical retirement, she continues as a volunteer in schools with master gardeners, educating primary school students on how to grow plants and lead others in workshops in composting. Her family surrounds her with support and continues navigating her medical illness through her ocular melanoma. Her mother died of ocular melanoma and Ann knows the ins and outs of ocular melanoma being a teen in the family at the same time. All those years later, Dunn found in which she was diagnosed with melanoma of the eye. Her genetic testing classifies her as a class two, which is not good. And she's used her training both in the office and with medical personnel to help others with OM and learn about skills helpful in working with society. So I'm really excited to have Ann join us today. So let me bring her on. Hi, Ann. How are you? I'm good, thank you, how are you? Really excited, you know, um, A Cure Insight is excited to be celebrating Cancer Survivor Day tomorrow, June 6th, and having you on. So, you know, being an OM advocate, uh, you wrote a book about how to kind of survive this and give people a toolbox. So I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about that.
0: Well, I decided to write this book after I went to um, Cleveland in a conference for OM. And I listened to Dr. Afshar when he was going over the whole Facebook interview that different people had written comments about their experiences of going through OM. And I was floored because some of my training when I was in my schooling was medical sociology. And Mm -hmm. what people were saying, I was, amazed continue to go on. And I just realized that we needed to provide a lot more hands on support for people. So that's why I wrote the handbook to give people kind of an understanding of the bigger picture because you're in so much shock upon diagnosis.
1: Mm -hmm. And you kind of talked with me about that. I I got the pleasure of meeting and a couple minutes before backstage. And one of the things she really talked about was the different possible stages that people might go through after a diagnosis. Can
0: you kind of elaborate on that? Well, the stages, and I haven't really thought this well enough through because we, you clarified, oh, is that like stages of grief? In some respects it is because you're letting go of your old life before OM, and now you've got a whole new life and you don't know where it's gonna go. And as I shared with you, a lot of people have very different experiences than I did. I really have been very blessed and very fortunate. I didn't lose my eye like my mom did. I didn't go into depression like my mom did. Again, when she was diagnosed and I was 16, you know, we didn't have the same information that we have now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a, a positive outlook. She was treated at UCLA. So we were very fortunate in that realm, but they didn't treat it any differently than they treated all the other cancers, which was to overwhelm the body with chemicals. So um, I was very fortunate to have proton beam, and I did very well with it. I have read through. I do follow the support group on Facebook. That that's actually how I got on Facebook. I had never been on Facebook, and. It was like, okay, so I wanted to. I do follow it. I wanna know what's going on with different people. Some people have multiple levels of trauma based on not only their diagnosis, but the loss of the eye, how quickly someone is diagnosed with METs, mm-hmm. metastasis. I mean, it's so threatening and the statistics are overwhelmingly frightening to be told at class two, when you find out which class you are, that you're gonna die within the first three years. Some people do die within the first year of diagnosis. And Mm -hmm. we don't know why, Mm -hmm. and we still don't know. And so myself, I didn't have adjuvant therapy, which was a risk that I took, especially given that genetically my mom had it. But I'm one of those Northern California girls that I want to be as clean as possible. Fortunately for me, having finally moved out of doing scans every three months, then I moved into state, you know, scans every four months. Now I am at the scans at six months. It's so scary to make each jump because, well, what if it happens this time and they don't catch it soon enough? So that pins and needles effect, which is part of already related to trauma work, which is that hypervigilance. And the sooner that any of us can get into a state where we can start to trust the ground that we're walking on and trust our ability to assess what's going on in our body, the better we're all going to be. You know, that's, it's something that's really interesting. You brought up, and we'll talk about this
1: later, you brought up the possibility of the, the trauma that's actually going on and how that might affect, you know, past traumas. And this is something that you kind of discuss, you and I had discussed, and something in your book that you discussed are ways for you to really kind of get through this so that you're living really well and healthy for yourself, which is different for each person. Yeah. So can you kind of walk us through what, what the book kind of goes through and some of the highlights for
0: the book? And then we'll talk a little bit more about trauma afterwards. So, so I'm going to answer your question kind of in a circuitous way. Mm -hmm. So I shared with you and I've shared with other people that I speak every year for the conferences on strategies about keeping ourselves healthy and It's kind of funny because um, Melody asked me to review some material that she's put together for a new website. I hope this is okay. I'm saying this. And (laughs) I kind of smiled because I'd forgotten that that was the material I spoke about in Redondo Beach Mm -hmm. two conferences back because we didn't have a conference with COVID the strategy that I'm using is that I speak every year. So I do research on how to better take care of myself throughout the year. And I practice the different things to find out, okay, does this work? Does this do anything for me? And. The reason why in the book I have those places for people to write things out, not only about can they remember what they've actually read because that's, that's part of the first part of the struggle of, You know, you're in shock and you can't process information, but it's also an opportunity to write out how you actually are being affected emotionally because it's your private book unless you decide to share it with other people. So getting this stuff out and helping yourself understand what's happening is going to help you let go, not you personally, but any of the survivors let go of trying to hold it all unto yourself. Cause it's, it's a big bag of tricks
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a lot. And when you are battling, you know, an illness and trying and this disease and trying to make sure that you stay healthy, one of the ways that you could do this is by, you know, making sure that there's not any outside stressors. So the tool, the toolkit that you're really focused on is making sure that people relieve themselves from some of those stressors that they that's going on.
0: Yeah. I, in fact, So I was very fortunate to have Dr. D'Amato, who's very well known in the OM world, before he retired and went back to England. And he kept telling me that I needed to look at his dissertation. And this is actually in the book. And finally, I mean, who wants to read a dissertation? I certainly didn't want to read a dissertation, but I finally read it. And the biggest pieces were about social support that is critical that we have social support. And it's not necessarily that the other people understand, like some I would say almost all of my personal relationships have been affected because people don't really understand what, what I'm dealing with. I finally let it go for the most part. I, I have, you know, my close buds that are close to me. I'll tell them what's going on, but I don't tell other people because I get upset because they don't understand, and they don't understand the magnitude of what I'm dealing with. And all it does is make me feel bad. So it's like, okay. But the other piece that I didn't mention is if there is pre existing trauma, mm-hmm. this material ricochets off that pre existing trauma. So if there's mm-hmm. a history where my audience already knows I came from a bad background, my mom really did have a lot of other problems besides OM. And mm-hmm. so I needed to recognize how to separate out what was pre-existing trauma from my mom and my connection with her, as opposed to the OM and being affected to the day-to-day stuff. It also plays out in a what I think is an important piece around how I'm being treated, how other people are being treated by the medical professionals. And if that if I don't feel like I'm being heard, understood and respected, I need to find someone else who will hear me. And that's easy for me to say because I live three hours away from a major city so I can drive to it, I have to spend the night, but I can drive to my appointments. Other people have to fly in to their big appointments and they may not have the variety of choices that I have. So I understand that if you live in the middle of a state where there's fewer providers the way i've always identified my stuff is that if i have a professional that has the expertise i don't necessarily need the bedside manner i'll find someone else that'll give me the bedside manner
1: right and you know you mentioned a little bit about the traumas and thank you for sharing that i know that you know it's always uh, uncomfortable sometimes to share about past histories but I think it's an important thing that we point out because as your body is going through this, your body's not only going through this through this, but also it's your mind and your heart that are going through this. So you mentioned about the traumas and past traumas possibly kind of glomming on to this process that you're going through. Are your toolbox and your book works through that ability to kind of separate the two out, correct?
0: It does to the extent that this is a beginner's manual. Mm-hmm, you know. No if so it would be an opportunity that if someone walked in with this book to me for for me as a therapist to see and I've had lots of clients do this with me that, okay, I want you to read these books. I want you to be able to speak this author's language to me. I take Mm -hmm. as a therapist, I will take that responsibility on. If I'm not willing to do that, I will say that. Maybe I'm too busy or I'm teaching at the same time, or it just isn't gonna be a good match for us. I tell the person, okay, this isn't gonna work, but here's some referrals. This is about you advocating for what you need. So. Trauma is a very big, big word now. And mm-hmm. one of the one of my side roles that I'm doing in my volunteer work is I've taken on a major project all on racism. So I'm diving deep into trauma about intergenerational work that we can be traumatized and carry trauma with us that we don't know anything about. A lot of people will say, oh, I had a normal childhood. My mom and dad loved me, but little did I know that Oh, my grandmother lived in a country where there wasn't enough food. There was threat of bombs. There was, you know, no medical care. That that trauma gets passed on genetically to me.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, and this is where you and I, you know, are kindred spirits because of the work that I do in, um, in DEI work and in the consulting. This intergenerational is passed through your DNA. Yeah. And that is something that maybe you didn't realize until you have this diagnosis. And then things start coming up in ways that normally you wouldn't understand. So that's when you have the ability to take a step back. And what I really like about what Ann is saying is that you become your own advocate. Yes. And if you don't like that something's going on, or you feel as if the doctor is not hearing your concerns, or maybe, you know, not understanding exactly your background or any of those things that you can advocate to have different doctors.
0: Or is there a nurse practitioner in the same practice that I could talk to that could communicate it in a different way to the physician? Right. Because a lot of physicians don't want to get into this because it's not evidence-based. It's my feelings, right? Right. Right. But that doesn't mean it's not valid. So. I remember when I went to go get my uh, mask, you know, they make a mask for your face before proton beam. And I remember listening to the doctor, she was seated on the lab table and I'm seated in a chair and I'm with my husband and my eyes are scanning across, looking at all the different things in this lab. And I land on this chair, I've already told this story in the past, but I looked at this chair and I'm like, oh my God, that looks like an executioner's chair. And what I tell the audience that's already heard this, I forgot that the guy that designed the chair was in the room. And he was very proud of that chair. But as a woman seated in that chair, you're strapped in. Mm. Every body part is strapped down. And so not knowing that ahead of time, that was you know, thank God I know how to be able to calm myself down and calm my energy down to kind of flow with what's going on. But if you don't know that that's going to happen, that's not good.
1: No, that it sounds like a really scary situation and could cause a lot of, you know, that the trauma that is deeply rooted down in your body to come back out. So that's one of the things that you really focus on is being aware of not only possible past traumas but just the way that you're feeling in the moment to be Mm -hmm. able to it's okay to advocate for yourself and say you know can we take a moment (laughs) to you know readjust so that you can get in the right space because that's really what's beneficial for your recovery and you know moving towards a survivor now i see there that you have survivor and thriver so i would love to hear about what thriving looks like and and why you put that on your
0: kind of who you are. Well, survivor is a stage. Thriving is kind of like graduation. So thriving for me personally, I don't want OM as my identity. I Mm -hmm. have other parts of my life. I'm a married woman. I've let go of my career. I had to re-figure out what am I going to do? to be contributing in the community and still protect my immune system and all this stuff. So thriving is personally for me is being able to make contributions to my community and to my friends and making sure that I'm staying present for other people and my family's needs. So thriving is kind of like putting the flowers, you know, putting flowers on the table. Thriving is looking for the color in life. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, making sure that even though the circumstances, like everybody knows that I live 14 miles from campfire and campfire was going on Mm -hmm. when I spoke in Florida. That's my community. Those are my law enforcement and fire people. How do I contribute to them when something is so catastrophic at that level? So it's, it's recognizing... Proportionately speaking, how my life is being affected, but also that I'm in the realm of everybody else's lives too. Mm-hmm. It's it's
1: being really self aware of not only what's going on in your your direct sphere, but then also on the outside of that. You know, you talked a little bit about another way that you thrive is that you have like a very strong circle of friends and family that you kind of keep to. But what you also kind of recognize is as you started to go out of that circle that people weren't understanding. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. I remember being very disappointed with one of my very, very close friends because she's a clinical psychologist. She and I have been together for 35 years and it's that understanding from her part, well, you, you've made it three years, you've made it five years, it's over, isn't it? And, and I read that in the Facebook, you know, a lot of people, their hearts hurt deeply because a family member doesn't get it. And what do I do with that piece and not go into resentment? clinically in resentment, the language in AA is about resending that message over and over and over. And Mm -hmm. I've talked a lot in different trainings about not linking all my thoughts together to go down a negative lane. I already know where it's gonna go, so I don't need to keep doing that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's called thought stopping. And so the more that I can stay out of that negativity and recognize that that's their stuff, not mine, Mm -hmm. and not put that on them, so. uh.
1: That's a hard thing to do, right? You know, I think for a lot of people, and especially when you're going through something that's so traumatic, you know, I think for a lot of people, um, they just don't understand until it's really right next to them, and sometimes, even when it's right next to them, they don't understand.
0: Well, I learned a good lesson. I mean, I have done a lot, like I said, I have a background in medical sociology as well, and so, uh, you know, as primed as a kid, my mom was sick a lot. And so I mm-hmm. did a special piece around learning how to work with people who had serious medical illnesses. Well, I did that for decades throughout my practice. And I thought I really got it. I thought I understood it until it happened to me. Right. And it was like, oh, skin anxiety is a real thing. I would imagine
1: how scary that could be you know going in first like you said every three months and then every six months it's that's that's very scary it's it's a scary thing and i look at everyone who's here survivors we have about 20 people watching which i'm really excited to have you all here suzanne commented that she had forgotten about the chair and that you were right in regards to that description You know, it's, it's things that are unique to the situation that each of you are going through. And, you know, I'm so glad that each of you is here and listening. You talked about what you went through in regards to your mom and her diagnosis, and then fast forward 40 years and then your own diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I would love for The people who are watching and those who watch after to understand, like, maybe what their family members are going through or what their kids are going through as you know these types of diagnoses happen.
0: Well, again, it's a personal story, but I remember sitting in the ophthalmologist's office. I used to go every year, I I was a student, so I paid cash to go see the ophthalmologist. And I remember when I was about 35. The doctor said, oh, you don't need to keep doing this. I said, oh, okay. So I didn't, I stopped, like most of us. And I remember I told my girlfriend, a nurse, that I was having these flashes. And she said, oh, you may have torn your retina, so you need to go in right away. And the response I got from the receptionist, when I called, I thought, oh, we'll book an appointment in a couple of days, you know, no big deal. No, you're going to be seen today. Oh, wow. And then the doctor kind of looked at me and he goes, I think you have a melanoma and he leaves the room. He's in his little doctor outfit. He leaves the room and I remember sitting in that chair and I'm in there by myself and I'm just kind of looking around going, I've heard that word somewhere that what melanoma. And then, you know, as you're seated by yourself and I go back through the deck. Oh my God. That's what my mother had. So yeah, that was pretty shocking. And you know, one of the questions that we did
1: have come up is how do you, and I know this is your own personal experience, but maybe how, do, how might people be able to manage that anxiety either during their scans or as scans are coming up? Like what things that have you done or suggestion in your book or things that possibly could help people during that time of that high anxiety?
0: So I, I still stick with it. I've never opened my eyes in the machines. It's it's kind of this thing. I just don't want to do that. It's not that I'm afraid. It's kind of like one of my little rituals. When I undress, when I take my clothes off to get into their hospital stuff, I'm all I'm sitting and waiting and I'm just deep breathing. I'm dropping into just calming my body and staying present. I'm a meditator, so I will mm-hmm. drop into just concentrating and trying to just stay in the moment. I think it was Anne Lamott, this wonderful writer who says, don't go up there. It's dangerous up in that attic. And it's Mm -hmm. true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It could be this time. I mean, we can really jack ourselves up. They call that the white coat effect. That's Mm -hmm. from uh, going to doctor's offices. Your blood pressure will go up. So I concentrate Everybody knows I talk about doing the two toes, you know, scrunching your toes back and forth because it keeps the frontal lobes online and the amygdala that's in the middle of our brain, that's the lizard brain and it can't come out and put me into a panic, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm able to be able to just kind of flow with they're late or we have to redo this or they don't have the right kind of earbuds. They they don't do listening to music anymore. I've had so many scans now. There's a different story for every one of them. So it's like, oh, okay. So it's yeah, not being able to flow.
1: Yeah, and it's really important to keep that part of your brain, the amygdala, kind of uh, engaged during that time because that's really when you can either freeze, or you flight, or you know fight during those times. And that's, and then it takes your body to new levels, and you know, it just really kind of focus on you know, keeping your body calm. And there's this really great app for meditation that I've used, it's called Balance. I don't mm. know um, if, and it's great cause it gives you little day resets. There's really quick meditations. There's meditations awesome. based on everything. So that's another tip that you could also use. If someone's looking for a therapist that kind of understands, you know, these kind of diagnosis, what should they look for? Or what kind of questions should they be asking in order to See if that therapist might be a good addition to their medical care.
0: Very good question. <laughs> very good question. On the phone, read yourself. Do I, do I like the connection? Kind of like what you and I did right before we got on air. Right. Do we connect? Do, does this person sound like they're overwhelmed or very busy? Because if they are, they're not gonna be available for slowly walking through recovery. Do they have a background in working with serious medical illnesses? What kinds of training do they already have in trauma work? Not just graduate level, but do they know how to work with the body? Now, the kind of work that I was trained in down in the Bay Area, I did some hands-on work, but a lot of therapists in a lot of areas in the United States, especially in California, don't wanna do touching the body you need to know, are you comfortable with your body being touched by someone that you don't know or not? As a therapist, I wasn't really comfortable because we'd spent so many years, don't touch the body kind of stuff. So uh, do they understand how neurology works? And ask them, what are some of the interventions that you know how to keep that amygdala in check? That will help the patients know if the therapist actually knows. Do they know how to calm the body down? Do they know how to get the body energy to get up? Because some people, so you can already tell I'm very high energy. I've also had a little too much tea, <laughs> but some people have really low energy and no get up and go. And does the therapist know how to be able to get that energy getting up?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But was asking in the chat, did a genetic test confirmed the genetic link between your mother's OM and your
0: OM? No, my doctor said no, that it was a random event. I said, no, you just haven't found the connection yet. And so I told him it's 36 times 10 to the 13th power that it is connected. So, I mean, that's how far out they would have to work to be able to make that connection. So it's understandable, but he was so shocked that I could name it and he said, how did you know that? And I said, well, I did have graduate level statistics, <laughs> but I was afraid I was going to drop a couple of zeros. So I asked Siri <laughs> <laughs> and he, turned, yeah, everyone's around ask it. It. he <laughs> turned around and looked at the resident and he says, you need to remember this.
1: <laughs> Everyone now is going to ask Siri that specific question.
0: <laughs> so how you do it, so so they can do it themselves, is that you, it, our statistics are six and one million. Mm-hmm. So it's six and one million times six and one million if there's a genetic connection. That's so amazing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, there you go. Technology for the win on that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> When your family and your friends don't understand OM or, you know, the the feelings that you're going through in regards to scans or, you know, just the basic concerns and fears that you have as someone who has OM or, you know, is in um, remission and a survivor, how do you keep from feeling resentful or hurt feelings, like continuing on so that you can continue that relationship with them?
0: Well, that's a really hard question mm-hmm. in that, that does come down to both spiritual work and personal work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, this comes back to forgiveness. This is where my advantage of my age has a blessing. You know, I'm over 60, obviously, because I was diagnosed at 60. So I want my relationships to continue. And so it's up to me personally to figure out what I'm doing whether whatever religion it is to hand that over, because it's not my place to have judgment for those other people. And what that does, there's actually an out for that. For me personally, what that does is it gives me back the power around my own process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those people for whatever reason are not able to get there. And I have the opportunity to figure out how to be as graceful as possible in releasing them from my expectations. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a process. It's it's mm-hmm. not push this button and it's fixed. It's not. It's regular work on my part because I do have people. Obviously, I have people like that in my world. and And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm thinking of one person in particular who is a very close family member and the truth of the matter is is that it's her fear about recognizing what this does she doesn't want to lose me so that's why she can't take it in as to what this really means right and you know and that's kind of meeting
1: people at where they are, right? And, yeah. and you can make that choice for yourself, whether it's, you know, right now in my space, I don't wanna meet them where they are. So I'm not going to, as I go through this next stage, like you were talking about, and maybe a stage later, you might wanna come back to them and meet them where they are, so.
0: So this also piggybacks on what I did in the book about values and, and clarifying what kind of values are important to me. So I use the name of the value that's important to me is grace. That value is critical to me. My name actually means grace and Mm. means grace. And so Mm. it's an important value for me to do the best I can to maintain a graceful stance. My husband would agree, I'm not always there. And that's okay. Cause you also give yourself grace.
1: Like that's the thing. Not only are you giving others grace for being where they are, you as a person also give yourself grace. That's an important thing.
0: (laughs) It is. It is. And you really nailed that well because it is important to allow my own grief process about Mm -hmm. what I've lost. I've gained so much, you know, I've, I've learned volumes. In this journey, would I have learned those lessons had I not been on this journey? I'd like to think so, but probably not as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and the, and that's the thing, you know, uh, with each journey that you get a different line of lessons and you had mentioned this, like getting caught up in what could have been is, you know, really kind of dangerous psychological experience I, for yourself.
0: Right? Could have, should have.
1: Right, and looking forward is really how you've been able to thrive and survive through this whole kind of um, diagnosis. Suzanne is asking if you have a list of qualified specialists that maybe deal with cancer traumas, or is there a website that you can um, suggest for people to go to?
0: Actually, what I was gonna suggest, that's a really, really good question. And that's something that the group our whole group needs to do is to evaluate and find out who these practitioners are what i would suggest if it, any kind of a problem that a therapist i mean i used to work in a psychiatric hospital years ago and your hospital people are going to have names of people that have, that have kind of risen to the cream you know risen to the top being able to reach out to the hospital It turned out that when Dr. D'Amato wanted me to read that dissertation of his, he also wanted me to go see the psychologist that specializes in cancer. So a lot of the hospitals, the teaching hospitals, will have therapists on staff. At least UCSF did. I'm almost positive that all the major hospitals have that. I can't really name them off, but I would be very surprised because there's clinical social workers in every hospital mm-hmm. for discharging. So that would be one avenue. But I think it's a, it's a place where therapists in our communities need to be sending these names of people that are qualified. So people who have been trained, I'll give you a different way to do it. People who've been trained in Peter Levine's work Any of the therapists who have been trained in HAKOMI work, HAKOMI is H-A-K-O-M-I. There's other therapists in the world that uh, do international work around body work. Bessel Mm van der Kolk is a big name in trauma work and being able to work with this. So if they've been trained in really heavy duty trauma work, they're going to understand how to be able to work with the body getting overwhelmed.
1: And that's a question that you can ask your therapist. Like, don't be afraid to interview your therapist. It's really, if if you go into a relationship with a therapist and and it doesn't work out after three t- sessions, that's okay.
0: Yes, it it's is, totally it's not about okay. you. Right, right. I, you know, I've been interviewed uh, at times in my life when my husband and I are having a really difficult time in my relationship with him, right? And I'm distracted. It's not a comment about me not being a good therapist. It's a comment that I'm human and I'm not as available.
1: Yeah, therapists are human and that's the thing. So sometimes it might work and other times it might. So don't be afraid to ask those questions. Many of the Facebook users, so Peggy's saying many of the Facebook um, members in the group are younger people. She was diagnosed at 69 and she's 74 now and she's got no evidence of disease. So she's wondering, I know, so excited. We're celebrating you tomorrow, Peggy, along with everyone else. The other question that I have for you is, what's a a secret for you that you've used? I know for each person, it's kind of, um, it's gonna be different, but what are some of the secrets that you use to keep you in kind of that thriving stage?
0: Well, this year's specialty is, not only have I meditated for years and years, But this year I made a commitment that I would meditate every day. And that has really helped me stay more present. I also don't allow myself to get overwhelmed with stuff. So I tend to be, I don't tend to be, I am a very busy person. I'm involved in a lot of activities, but I'm recognizing that that over-scheduling is problematic and especially given the context that we're all going through now of coming out of covid you know we've been all cocooning for a year and a half and it's very very important that we figure out how we're going to come out of this the secrets also I'm a health healthy girl I'm a health nut you know I'm always reading on how better I can do my nutrition I've I've been a vegetarian since I was 20 so wow. So that's always been my orientation. And to be honest, I feel very blessed that I get to, to spend a lot of energy around how to improve the quality of my life.
1: That's a big thing. And you had mentioned it before. One of the things that you were able to do was kind of in a very quick turnaround way, you were able to stop working, retire, and really focus all of your energy on getting well.
0: Yeah, I would not have been able to work. I, I think that clinically, I have a couple of people still um, that I still see, but I honestly believe that some of my clinical work was not the best because I was just in shock for so long. How much of that was related to the proton beam radiation? I don't know.
1: Right, and you actually just answered a question that someone had asked, which was what kind of treatments did you have during your time? So proton beam radiation, was there any other treatments that you went through?
0: Not really. I mean, people who have proton beam know that they have little stitches that are put in their eyeball to pl- you know, for placement, for markers, for the physics. And I had to go in and have another little surgery after that for that, but that was no big deal really. And that's what I mean about how I've been graced in really getting through this whole thing. I've had very few mm-hmm. consequences.
1: And no metastasations too. Someone else had
0: asked that. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm getting ready to come up to my next scan at the end of the month. So
1: we're all going to send good vibes to you to make sure that, that it is clear and there's no (laughs) metastasations. One of the questions here too is what would be a first good step for someone who is becoming healthy, who has, gone through, there's no evidence of disease. Now, what would you suggest that they start to do as their kind of first steps out as a survivor
0: to become a thriver? To move beyond surviving, first of all, get out in nature. Anybody that does trauma work knows that getting out in nature, doing as much as you can with nature, it actually feeds our little physical beings. There is a name, there's a word of how the trees and the leaves resonate with our bodies. There's a word for that, but I never wrote it down. Identifying what gives purpose to that person. So my purpose initially was writing that book. It was like, oh no, we're not doing this. I want my people to be safe and and advocate for them. Identify what meanings they want for their lives. Like I like to travel. So I have a young person in my life that I've, I travel with every year. So we're very fortunate that way. I'm also, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed because I have good medical care. I have a good retirement. I have, a you know, I'm healthy and safe and that kind of stuff. So finding something that gives them purpose. I really do believe that beyond all my health habits, I really believe that having purpose is what has kept me alive.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, mean, for most people that, you know, who don't have this kind of diagnosis, that definitely does help, but even more so when your body is going through such a traumatic experience, that having that sense of purpose is really an important thing you know, what's one of the things that you, maybe you haven't been able to cover while we've been chatting here today. Like what's one thing that you think, you know, I absolutely want to make sure that people know when they're going through this, this part of their life, being someone who has OM. what would you say to them?
0: Identify what calms you. For example, for some people it's artwork. You know, being able to walk through the hallways of, of going from one exam room to the next, and they've got artwork up. See what you can do to use that to calm yourself. Find out what brings you that sense of pleasure, having a cup of tea with friends, making sure that that's incorporated on a regular basis. There's newer work now that's telling us, research-wise, how important it is to establish a regular schedule as soon as possible. People know that I've talked about getting out and walking on a regular basis. You know, you don't have to go to the gym, get some good walking shoes. Beyond that, breathing, relaxing the body, doing self care that helps you and make connections because really it's about our connections with each other that's way more important than anything else.
1: Thank you so much, and it's been such a pleasure to get to know you at the beginning, while well, it was just us, and with everyone here, we're really excited about you and your book, and anyone who wants to purchase the book can do so on the a Cure um, for a site, and we've put the link in the chat a few times. Oh, and Peggy actually has a question I'll get to right after. And Anne has graciously offered that all um, sales from the book on uh, Cure for a Sites website go directly to the nonprofit. So thank you so much, Anne, for that. Peggy is asking, is age a factor
0: in the occurrence of OM? I think in the past, we thought that the median age was 60 to be diagnosed, and so we thought it was an old person's, but we've been seeing reports, at least I've been seeing reports on Facebook of adolescents being diagnosed. We know of a child in England. We know who he is. He's had it all his life. It's not an old person's disease anymore. We know of young adolescents that are being diagnosed. We know that people are in their 20s and in their 30s, those people, they are the ones that really are going to need more support. And they really want to find people that will help them understand their process. Because, you know, those of us 60 and older, you know, we at least I i will speak for myself. It's in a context. I've lived most of my life already. Mm-hmm. Right. And I haven't carried this burden. My mother provided that opportunity for me to be acquainted with it, but I got to put the burden down for 40 years. And then I picked that burden back up. The young people and their families, wow, it's a, it's a burden. They're going to need to figure out what to do to create a package around it, but to continue to prosper and thrive in a way that, yes, it's true, I've got to deal with this. And it's not unique to us, You know, lots of people, sadly to say, carry very heavy diagnoses and they have a thriving life. So Mm -hmm. I don't mean to make light of it at all.
1: Well, and I think that, you know, it kind of goes back to what you were saying and Candace talked about this is a sense of purpose, living that healthy lifestyle for you and connecting to people, no matter what your age in regards to this diagnosis, because you can go it alone, you can, but it's so much easier and brings that, you know, re- some relief to you if you have that connection all around you to help you through this time.
0: You need to make those connections. I had this conversation with myself about would I be alive today if I had done this on my own? I married late in life and I was a survivor and a striver and I could do just about anything. I've, I've done some amazing things as a woman and a small woman at that. The long and short of it is we are social animals. We It's meant for us to make connections. And so the people that are in my little circle now were not the people 15 years ago before my diagnosis. I knew them, I knew of them, but they've come to the forefront because I can trust them. They keep my confidences. I don't have to talk about this stuff all the time. That's another thing that I didn't do was talk about it all the time. Relationships are a two way street. And so I need to also be aware that other people have their lives and their stuff too. So Mm -hmm. the richness and the tapestry. So I got way off target here.
1: No, that was perfect. And and it's been such a pleasure getting to know you before and during. What a great treat to have you on. And the book can be purchased uh, through the Acure Insight website. Uh, those of you who are watching us internationally, if um, you would like to get it shipped internationally, the best way to do that is through Amazon and they can ship it to you internationally. Anne has offered to come back. So let us know if you want Anne to come back. Thank you so much, Anne, for all the work you do, not only in OM, but also outside with uh, first responders and making sure that they are able to get the care they need.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast. Please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Acure Insight. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.